folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today I'm joined by Tiziana Cassiaro. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that name as as my Italian listeners, and she would love it uh, to be pronounced. And she's just an amazing lady. She is a professor of organizational behavior at Rotman School of Management in Toronto, and has a background from Harvard, written books, Power for All is the book that we're going to talk about today. And you're going to hear her story uh, from coming from Italy, from the Mezzogiorno, from Puglia, all the way through to her journey to to overcome some major challenges uh, in the 90s in terms of getting her space in the scholarly place that we talk about today. A, a fundamentally powerful conversation about power and where it comes from and how it operates. And her book, well worth a read um, to do. This will be part one of a uh, you know, two-part uh, piece because we never got to finish her career. It's fascinating to talk to her and to listen to her. So enjoy today. Enjoy Tiziano and uh, her story. And I look forward to hearing what your feedback is. How are things? How are things going? Things are well. Uh, spring is very slowly springing in Toronto. <laughs> now, I've learned over, over the years in this fine city that you can't see spring really until early May. That, yeah. That's the truth. I mean, end of April, you start maybe a little bit, and that's where we are. And yeah. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the, the repetition of, of that cycle because mm-hmm. with climate change, Changing things. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually treasure the coldness. <laughs> it's it's this twisted way of coping with anxiety about climate change. Somebody living in Toronto going, I'm cherishing the coldness, and I'm <laughs> going, never heard that before. It's like Boston. Boston people are the same, aren't they? I yes. Think. <laughs> yeah. And and I, when I when I lived there, it was a very similar feeling. You get to April. Okay, isn't it time? But uh, yeah. spring is is a little. It's those couple of weeks earlier in Boston than here, so yeah. uh, that's kind of nice actually to extend it, it a bit. It How are you? How are you, Colin? Yeah, no, good. As I said, daughter's turned eighteen, which is amazing. So I feel, frankly, I think I look older and sound older just overnight. But I'm. <laughs> But I'm good. I'm kicking off two big projects. So I'm heading back to Boston next week in New York. So I've had three weeks in the U.S., which was lovely. So I had a bit of Phoenix sun. So it was just, it was just gorgeous. Yeah. Lovely. Oh, oh I'm glad to hear. I'm going to the state this weekend. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, for my husband's father's 80th birthday. Another big milestone. Yeah. And so we decided to just go into maskless land (laughs) because in Canada, people are still pretty good, but in Toronto, Uh, but uh, not in the States. And uh, so we're ready, 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 ready. Yes. (laughs) So, so tell us a bit about you then. Tell us a bit about your background. So we've gathered that Toronto is home, but Boston has been a home. Yeah. Tell us a bit about yourself. That is right. I guess that, uh, uh, my pathway mm. goes from uh, Lake Como, the north of Milan, where I grew up. Mm. Uh, I had a short detour of three years, deep, deep in the heel of the boot of the Italian peninsula, across ah. the Mediterranean from uh, Greece, wow. uh, roughly, mm-hmm. down there in Puglia, where, where my dad was from. And when he took us for my last three years of high school, that was the first culture shock. Wow. 
<laughs> of my life, uh, even though it was still within the same Italian culture in many ways, but it was still very different. Is that what they call the Mezzogiorno? Is that, would you describe that as the Mezzogiorno? Yes, it, it's yeah. definitely part of the Mezzogiorno. Mezzogiorno is, is really the the bottom of the mm. Italian peninsula. And okay. uh, for many historical reasons that mm. we cannot delve in uh, your podcast because it takes a little too long. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> another podcast I'll set up. It's <laughs> another, another episode. Italy has developed in a way that has made the north much more industrially advanced and prosperous than the South. Right. And um, all kinds of blaming occurs uh, around why that, that has happened. And uh, I don't take any part in that blaming because I represent the whole peninsula. Yeah. My mother is from Tuscany, which is the center, mm-hmm. and in many ways the cultural cradle of our our country. And uh, so nobody messes with Tuscany uh, because they're, they're, they're too good to be messed good. with. Yes. <laughs> but I grew up in the north. My father's from the south. So I, I see the, the good in my country, all of it, really. And then I went back to Milan after those three years in the deep south, mm. went to Bocconi University. Mm. which is a really splendid institution for economics and management. Mm. And that's where really my pathway began because it took me a while to to figure out that's what I was going to do. I contemplated at the end of high school all kinds of weird things Mm. that I might want to do, ranging literally from industrial chemistry all wow. the way to East Asian languages. I contemplated it all. I was quite, let's just say, open-minded, a.k.a. confused about what I wanted to do. And I say this because I know a lot of young people who feel very disoriented mm. when they have to make big choices. Who do you want to become? What do you yeah. want to do? And it is actually very difficult Hmm. to find people who have a very clear-cut passion early on. And that's their path. Off they go. They're happy. And uh, yes, they have bumps along the way, but really they're doing what they want to do. I was not at all like that. Hmm. So eventually I circled in Bocconi because it was a great place with excellent Mm. people and I thought well they're excellent so something good will come out of it which is one way to approach these (laughs) quandaries you go where good people are and then maybe you learn and Mm. so I learn I do things and this is where uh, some big choices started to happen Mm -hmm. because I thought for the duration of my studies at Bocconi that I would become one of those McKinsey consultants Mm. I really thought I would be out there doing the work, mm-hmm. uh, supporting uh, management practice by being a really top-notch consultant. Interesting. I did not think I would become an academic. No. Uh, it's something that emerged towards the end of my journey mm. where I was working on my bachelor's thesis and um, – my professor, my advisor said, well, I'm, I'm creating this new research center. Why don't you stick around just <laughs> for, for a year or two, see, see how you feel? Mm. And that was it. Wow. That was it. I mm. just started to 
read very broadly, and I found, oh, this cool stuff that, that was being developed by these researchers. And I thought, I want to be one of those people. Mm-hmm. I was thrown very young in the executive education classroom because I would read this stuff. I thought, oh, my God, this is so helpful to people who actually lead companies. Yeah. I want to bring it to them. And I would just concoct these sessions where I would just put them through some experiential thing <laughs> and uh, and then say, yeah, you know why you struggle with that particular exercise? Because of this stuff. We know that hmm. the cognition of the executive goes through certain things and decision-making is difficult for these reasons. And I was basically taking the research and making it real yeah. for these folks that were, then were going to use it. Nice. And that's, I think, what you call a thought leader. Yeah. That where you are taking thoughts. In, in that case, it was still other people's thoughts for the most part versus my own mm. that came later. But I found it really energizing mm. to, to do this kind of work where I was not actually in the field, in the trenches, doing the work. Yep. But I could see that these ideas were actually helping the folks that were doing the work. And where were you playing at the time? What areas were you playing? Cognition came out there, but fascinated to see where you start and where you ended up and whether there's a path. Yeah, I started uh, with crisis management. Interesting. Because it was this uh, combo, and I've always loved interdisciplinary connections where you're taking – a problem in one domain and you connect it to a problem in another, mm. which is really the essence of creativity, really. Yep. But I, I don't think of myself as a creative person. I'm not at all. I mean, you would not categorize me as an artist. I am horrendous in anything <laughs> artistic. But in terms of the intellectual curiosity, I love crisis management because it connected organizational variables, mm-hmm. how you structure an organization, the systems that make a crisis more or less likely mm-hmm. with the very psychological decision-making that happens in the heads of people yeah. as they try to manage such big events. Mm-hmm. So there's something structural about it. You know, yeah. if you operate in a certain industry, you do certain things, there are going to be different complexities in the system that make a crisis more likely or less. Hmm. But then once you encounter those big shocks, you got to be equipped to handle them. And Hmm. there's a component of it that is purely cognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Decision-making then becomes the relevant uh, set of uh, insights to Mm -hmm. bring to the equation. And there's an emotional component. Because when you're in the middle of something traumatizing, (laughs) like crises often are for a leader, and for the people that are on the receiving end, you need to know how to understand your reactions emotionally. Otherwise, it's very, going to be very, very difficult to make the decisions in an effective manner. Cognition and emotion are so entwined. Hmm. You can't really disentangle them. So once you understand that the, the sandbox, yeah. you, you realize that it's a pretty big sandbox. There's a lot that goes on in there. Yeah. And that's why at some point after about a year of this, I was, you know, this kind of junior research and teaching slave, really. 
I think that that's a, the better way. They did pay me some, so yeah. I, I can't really use that word willy-nilly. I know that is a, is a very loaded word. You were earning your right to move uh, on to the next level. That's yeah. right. It was more that <laughs> I thought, well, I, if I want to do this for real, mm. I have to become a researcher myself. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that I didn't know how to do that thing. Mm. I mean, I studied the classic management subjects. I mean, yes, there was a sprinkle of economics, there was a sprinkle of uh, the law, but you know, I studied finance, marketing, ops, I mean, all of those things. I didn't know how to be a researcher. And it turns out, Colin, that it's a whole other endeavor. Yeah. Uh, you need many, many, many different skills mm. to know how to generate knowledge that is solid, rigorous. Yeah. You need to learn all that. Mm. And that's what took me to America. Hey. Yes. Uh, it was clear at that point that the schools where I could get a PhD and become one of those scholars I admire so much. I love that word, scholar. Yes, yeah. doesn't it sound good? Mainly because I've never been one myself. <laughs> I've never been scholarly in my life. My grandfather was a professor of theology. Ooh. And he always had this disappointed look in his face when he, cause I, <laughs> When we talked about emotion versus cognition, you know, for me, I was on the emotion side. So I always lived there. So I always wondered what this scholarly side looked like. But you found right. it. It's great. I found it. Even though I, I deal with emotions uh, very much. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I cannot claim that I'm not a, a pretty expressive person emotionally. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in that sense, I'm stereotypically Italian. and. Yeah. But but the, the cognition thing was yeah was also a pleasure for me yeah. connecting the dots really, mm. and that's why you know the early interest in crisis management was so keen for me because you 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 were forced to connect things that didn't look all that connected, yep. but they are, mm. and finding those connections you know makes that cross silo advance much more likely. So here I am trying to find my, a spot in the world that would take me. Yeah. And because I was really a nobody, mm. I didn't have a network no. in the United States at all. I came from a very practitioner-oriented piece of my university that had always sent to the best American schools their best econ students, but I was not an econ. I was really in management. Yeah. And at that point in time, it was not normal mm. for somebody like me to go off and get a PhD. So I scrambled. It was a scrambling exercise. Nice. It was back in the day so much. Now you just make it because, you know, you're not that old. Come on. No, you, <laughs> not, not old at all. I'm just uh, such, a, such a spiffy. Back in the uh, days. Yeah, well, back yeah. in the days. But, Colin, you have no idea. I, ha- I didn't have the internet really. No. And uh, it was very early 90s. In the States, mm. there was already enough for the World Wide Web. But, yeah. you know, we, we were kind of behind. So to know which schools were the good schools, I went to the American consulate in Milan. Huh. And I asked them, what are the good schools? I mean, uh, literally, this is the level of ignorance in which I was treading. That's amazing, though. And this lady gives me a copy of Business Week magazine. Huh. They had a ranking of American MBAs. Yeah. And because I said, you know, I'm coming from Bocconi, so business school, that she thought, okay, that's what I'm going to give her. And I wrote letters <laughs> to the top 25 of these. 
And at first I got materials about MBA programs. And when I received them, I was like, but, but that's not really what I want to do. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I have to seek out PhD programs. Mm. So I wrote again. <laughs> and eventually after very convoluted things, I get this material from a particular department at Carnegie Mellon University mm. that looked like was doing exactly what I wanted to do. Right. which was this joining of organizational science, mm-hmm. how organizations work, don't work, and the decision-making that is required mm. to operate in such environment. They were doing both. Interesting. It was a totally multidisciplinary social science uh, department, and I was like, oh, my God, that's it. And I applied, and by some miracle, they said, sure. Sure. Come on over. Huh. Because the fit was was remarkable. Mm. And that's when the challenges began. <laughs> and here is where I had to contend with what a lot of people have to contend, which is uh, finding the right balance between doubt and overconfidence. Yeah. And I had both. And uh, the, the difficulty was that I was not trained as a social scientist at all. Mm. I was trained as a as a manager. Mm-hmm. I was trained as a business person. <laughs> and I was put through these intense uh, seminars, PhD seminars that engaged with, you know, calling all of that scholarly stuff. Yeah. That I was not, uh, at the end of the day, really familiar with. Mm. And my English was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the, maybe it still is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't make claims that I did yeah. much better. But uh, I, I could uh, speak pretty well. I read pretty well. Mm-hmm. I could write pretty well. I didn't understand a thing. <laughs> you would talk. I would see your mouth move. Uh, I could not discern mm-hmm. the words. So you can you can imagine being in a seminar. Yeah. In a doctoral program with another eight students, maybe everybody is talking through some research article and you're supposed to be in the flow, get what they're saying, articulate your own thoughts on your feet without understanding half of what is being said and without having the right training. So it was trial by fire. Yeah. And uh, I, I really doubted that I belonged in there mm-hmm. and very slowly found my footing. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I didn't give up mm-hmm. was pride. Mm-hmm. I had made this uh, unconventional move at that time for a person like me. Yeah. Later on, it became much more conventional, but I was early in that, in that kind of process. And I did not want to have to go back. No with my tail between my legs and say, I failed. I, I couldn't, I couldn't mm. keep up. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Mm. So I stuck with it, mm. <sighs> you know, gritting my teeth Yeah. and then proceeded to have another massive failure <laughs> wherein I allowed my growing confidence that I had a knack for this stuff to lead me to take this qualifying exam that you have to take to to be able to start your dissertation, Hmm. Uh, to take it early and do it harder on me than I needed to. I chose a very broad set of topics. And sure enough, I failed 
that exam brutally. Mm-hmm. And that's when even my advisor essentially told me, well, you might not be cut out for this. Mm-hmm. And that's where I had to contend with the crippling doubt yeah. that you encounter and some sense that, no, I, I have something. Mm-hmm. I can do at least some parts of this job as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And sure, I need to learn a bunch of other parts that are not natural for me. They're not my thing. But boy, can't I do that? Really? I think I can. And I just said, no, I, I will. I will. Mm-hmm. I, I will find that gap. Mm-hmm. I will fill it because I do have some strengths. That, that's really the kind of work that a lot of leaders need to do. Mm-hmm. Deep awareness of your limitations, yep. without which you are not able to appreciate the input of others. Yeah. You don't value it, you don't, and therefore you don't seek it. Mm-hmm. And when you don't seek it, you become worse. Mm-hmm. So you must have an awareness of your limitations, mm-hmm. but you also need enough confidence in your capabilities to take action, yeah. to be able to embrace something challenging. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, harness all the forces of the other people around you through the humility that you've developed because you know that you don't know everything. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what I had fallen into, I I saw myself grow in this profession, and I thought, "Oh, I got this, no problem. Easy. Let me <laughs> easy, let me take this massively absurd qualifying exam way before I was ready for it." Yeah. I was arrogant about yeah. it, so yeah. it's it's a constant search for that territory. The ancient Romans used to say. In medio stat virtus, virtue is in the middle. Mm. You don't want to indulge extremes. And when you are overwhelmed by doubt, mm. you're paralyzed. Yeah. And then you withdraw. And it's so sad because you never really try. Yeah. And you've got to try. You've got to embrace the crisis, the moment yeah. where you're tested. But the other extreme is hubris. And uh, it's so easy to fall in it when you've been successful. Mm -hmm. And the the people that listen to your show probably know this very well. And uh, it's so easy to forget. Uh, Mm. And that's why I really love the focus of your podcast on Mm. the failures, the moments where you really had to look at yourself critically, but also kindly. Yeah. At the same time. And it took me a while to get there. And it's still, honestly, a work in progress. Yeah. Because I, I love that, the, the, the hubris, just the word I love. But the, there's a piece in here for me that, you know, I always talk about three Cs. I talk about confidence, having the physicality, vocality to speak. And you and I don't lack the confidence to be able to speak, stand up in front of people, do that, even though I get nervous in giving keynotes, everything else. The conviction is about what you know. Yeah. And, but I, I also flip it around to, it's got to be about wisdom, not knowledge. So that great quote, which is knowledge, speak, wisdom, listen. So there's got to be that wisdom and that middle place virtues in the middle place is, is classically there. So how do I listen and, and work that? And then there's this connection piece and 
give you credit because I've worked in a second language in France. It's difficult enough to, in your own language, to fight those battles, but to do it in a second language is tough. Yeah. Very much so. And I admire young people that I see coming to North America mm. uh, for a degree and then professional uh, development. And and they come from languages, uh, often East Asian languages or South Asian languages. The East Asian languages are particularly challenging. I mean, the transition is enormously difficult. Mm. And I am just so grateful that I don't have to operate competently in Mandarin or whatever, whatever mm. uh, language that would be so far from the roots of ours, because, you know, English and Italian share a lot. The, the yeah. Romance languages are sprinkled all over English, and so mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're helped. Certain grammatical structures are not entirely different. So you have a lot that you can work with. Mm -hmm. And those people face really daunting challenges, and many succeed despite them. Yeah. It's something to admire, you know? Oh, it is. It's massive. And the pressure they put themselves and their families put them, and generically, I mean, I, I feel sorry for my 18-year-old daughter at the moment because my grades weren't great, put it that way, but the pressure that they're under to to achieve these grades to get to university and the grade requirements, and then and then you think about languages and you throw it in. So even to get to the, the, the place where scholars live and work, <laughs> yeah, is tough, but then to do it in a second language, as you did, was yeah. tough. That's why, you know, I just find it interesting when uh... – Older people, and I put myself in that category at this point, sadly, but, but truly, <laughs> I had to acknowledge, you know, they complain about the millennials and then they complain about the gen, whatever they are. Why What are they? Why is yeah. Those, those, those yeah. guys. And because, you know, they're entitled, <laughs> they, they want this and they want that and they want more balance and they want more challenging things. And so, yes, uh, they do. And, and they are. Mm. But you, do you understand the kind of competitiveness that they, they had to endure from very early on, all of this rush and race yeah. to build those resumes that start so early for so many of these kids, prompted by their own parents, oftentimes, yeah. and just the environment. This is a, a pressure cooker that we put them through. And yes, and at some point they, they become either hyper competitive and maybe they're a little blind to the fact that they are on this treadmill that will never stop. They then ask for some balance mm. and some interesting work that has meaning for them. Isn't that good that they're asking yeah. for that? Shouldn't we all ask for that? And uh, absolutely. And so, like you, because we ne didn't necessarily get the luxury of asking for balance and and meaning, we are resentful if they do ask for those things. But they're important, mm. and yeah. we we are showing them how important they are by putting them on the treadmill all the time. So. It all makes sense to me that they behave the way they do. We have to listen maybe a little bit more to what they're telling us. I think it's also nowadays, it's not only just their academic side, but it's 
the pressure on you know eating disorders uh, my daughters and their you know their, their group the body image uh, you know all that connection so all of those challenges that they have and i and in some ways you're right their their passion for doing good and for making a difference for me puts me to shame my biggest coach is my eldest daughter <laughs> and she calls me on bullying which I didn't see as bullying, but it's, she's right, um, you know, in a number of cases. But, you know, there's, there's a piece in here for me that that I do think that if we listen to this generation that's coming through at the moment, we will learn so much. I agree. And we have to be somewhat cognizant of the fact that they've experienced crises. Yeah. If all goes well, are going to bring them to that wisdom you were referring to a little bit faster than many of us got to. Mm. Uh, the growing up in the middle of a climate crisis yep. that really changes your understanding of what the future can do for you Agreed. has changed this, this younger crop. Mm. Uh, our kids uh, belong in that, in that group. I, I hope, I, I see that they are often wiser, yeah. uh, if not scared, uh, unfortunately, they're also scared and anxious about all, all of the above. Yeah. Maybe we'll give them perspective that will make them into better leaders of our future. Yeah. That's my, that's my hope. I go back to the seven generations, which I discovered recently, and, you know, the seven ge- generation philosophies about looking forward and how tribes around the world do that. And I think that's exactly it. But but they care for each other. They care for the people around them. And uh, I'm picking that up. And I hope that that seven generational philosophy, which we don't have in our generation, I don't believe at the moment, is the one that we should be looking for. So, it's, no. yeah. We've got off your story, but you know that we've got into this is exactly why I love our conversations. <laughs> we've got into some real depth here, but it's interesting because the book that you have is about power, and the book you've written after all that story, yeah, is about power, and that's what we're talking about here: the power to change, the power to do things from a, a wisdom perspective. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Being in my profession exposes you to people who often have ambitious goals, they want to create change. It's not always positive change, by the way. I'm not, I'm not Pollyannish about all of this, but mm. there's a lot of desire to have an impact in the, the people you encounter along the way when you mm. teach in a school of management. Yes, there's the business person who just wants to make a lot of money. Mm. And it it's just stops there, honestly. Yeah. And then there's a ton of other people Mm. who really want to do good work and really change how the organizations they work in operate and what they do and how they impact the communities around them and all of the all, all of the good stuff. And uh, what you see over time is that people with talent, people with desire and motivation uh, are often stifled mm. in their attempts to make these changes and the reason why they're stifled is because they don't completely understand power. Mm. And the fact that if you miss out on the basic mechanics of it, mm. you're going to be a little bit lost yeah. in navigating competing interests that unavoidably you encounter when you want to bring a group in a certain direction There would be dissenting views of what the direction should be, and there will be competing interests at play. 
And so power becomes fundamental. What my co-author, my dear friend, uh, Julie Batilan and I were trying to provide to people is both a guide Mm -hmm. through the fundamentals of power. What is it made of? How does it work? How do you see those, those basic mechanics play out in different contexts, circumstances, mm. different people that don't start with the same amount of power, they don't start with the same amount of access. How does that work? And then give them maybe the keys to the wisdom you were referring to earlier, because once you gain some power, instantly the challenge becomes using it well. Because power is a way of both energizing you. It is indeed a form of energy. It's Mm. the energy to to influence the world around you. But you can influence for all kinds of purposes. And uh, whether you influence it positive or negative depends very much on how you as a person engage with that power. Mm. And power is a way of twisting our psychology uh, Mm. because it does both of the things we were discussing earlier it uh, supports you in giving you enough confidence to move to interact with the world because if you don't feel like you have the capacity to influence the world you won't even try Mm. and that's a loss for everybody but it also makes you overconfident Mm -hmm. and it does another thing that is quite important for the type of impact you're going to achieve down the line. It makes you a little bit Mm self-focused. You lose sight of the fact that you we we are all interconnected. And that's what the younger generations get much more because they see how the way we have abused the climate in Western industrialized countries is affecting people in places that are still very much rural and not at all contributing to the emissions, we are on this planet together. They see a pandemic Hmm. that has thrown all of these interconnections into stark relief, where you know that you're not this solitary, powerful person that can just rule the world. And what you do affects lots of other people. What they do affects you. And once you understand that interdependence, it's going to be harder to let power make you self-absorbed and egomaniacal. But power tends to do that to us. So in this book, we give you the tools to really unpack the operation of power. Mm -hmm. So you lift the curtain off it and you see the inner workings. And then you connect those at the personal level with the big stuff. You know, the fact that your power is absolutely uh, intertwined with how power is distributed in the larger system. Like You and I were born in certain countries and have certain pathways that open certain doors. Mm -hmm. There are people for whom the doors never open or, or they have to struggle massively to get a chance mm. at accruing some power along the way. We depend on our circumstances so much. And so you need to understand power both very much within you, 
Mm-hmm. and in the big systems all around you. And that's what we do in this book. We connect the little and the big, nice. without which you can't really get power. You need to have both and a lot of work on power. And that's where the academic background helps us because mm. we can read all of it and from the philosophers that have given us so much guidance into how to understand mm. humanity, really, yep. to the political scientists, to the neuropsychologists that tell how the brain works, to the uh, law scholars that tell us and how do you build legal systems that keep power in check so that people are less likely to abuse it. You have to connect all these dots. And so basically I'm brought back to my early interest in this line of work, connecting the dots. Yeah. And and for some people, and this is where sometimes, this is where my inferiority comes from. And, uh, you know, when I look at my imposter syndrome, sitting and listening to my grandfather or one of his students who was brilliant at bringing, he brought his greatest challengers, his greatest enemies together to have conversations. But he had that ability to conceptualize an argument and think from different points of view. And I think this is where the joining of the dots sometimes, and I, what I love is you brought it down to some simplistic views around certain ways around here's pathways that we need to help and create here's some simpler smaller systems that you need to understand and here's some understanding because you know we've all done pestle or analysis but we've done it in a way most of us in a way which is here's my basic knowledge of politics and economics whereas you know just looking into some of these now and i think it's maybe with age i listen i read more I go, wow, I just, I wouldn't even know where to start. Brexit, for example, would not know where to start on that argument. Yeah. Right. So, so that power piece is quite important, but how do you bring it down to a simple level for people? What would be the the starting points for people to get it around there in their their heads? Two things, really. I say, I think you just, you have to admit it. It's just hard work, honestly. You you have, we read... I thought you were going to give me a I know, right? It's just so... I'm sorry. That's I'm it. sorry I'm to, 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 to burst your bubble <laughs> that you thought you could just kind of snap your fingers and go, oh, done. Uh, Julie and I <laughs> read... I my heels together and I sort this out. Yeah, that's no. right. Dorothy moment where uh, every, everything works out by itself. So we thought uh, when we started down this book writing journey that um, we knew plenty when we had been studying this stuff for 20 years and we had already read a bunch of stuff and we really thought we knew what we were gonna do and then we started to read some more and um, the search for those dots that were important expanded ever so far and uh, so we have piles of books everywhere Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point that uh, I started to fear for my own health because the, my bedside table had the, a, a pile so tall. <laughs> One of these <laughs> nights, something's going to happen. It's going to all come tumbling down. But um, it was such exciting work. It was hard work, but very exciting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Martin Luther King, uh, among the many, many things that um, he teaches us, showed us that the brilliance of his speeches Mm. was the result of a long, deep work of honing the message and how it was delivered. 
Mm-hmm. The I, I have a dream speech came from many previous iterations. Mm-hmm. And once you get to that memorable moment, you are benefiting from his zeroing in on how many times mm-hmm. can I repeat? And I have a dream. Mm-hmm. I have a dream today. How many times? Is it three times that works? Mm-hmm. Is it four times? Is it five? Mm-hmm. And so this is the honing that has to occur where you take something complex and you distill like a good liquor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's essential molecules. Yeah. The ones that you must have, you eliminate the ones that you don't need. Mm-hmm. And then it looks simple, but uh, in fact, it comes from very deep work. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. It's the translation from complexity to simplicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is more the conceptual thing that you were talking about earlier. Yep. And then the second one was, well, you have to bring it to life. Mm-hmm. You have to, the, the storytelling, the narrative that allows every reader to see how all of this conceptual work really manifests itself in real people that are yeah. struggling with this stuff, that are contending with challenges, they are in environments that are so different. And you go, like, how can I possibly learn from somebody in an investment bank when I am a climate activist? Yeah. You can totally learn. Yeah. As long as you have a framework to weave these experiences together and you go, ah, that's the commonality. Mm. That's why Brexit operated the way it did. Mm. The the commonalities are are, are what makes it discernible. Interesting, yeah. You see, there are certain elements that show up all the time that you can then apply to your own environment because Mm. now you got it. You got how the pattern works and you can just deploy it in whatever set of unique circumstances you are going through. I lo- you see, what I love about that answer is that it's about a point of view. It's a honing a point of view. And then it's about making the decisions with that point of view. And I love working with investment bankers. And I always remember bringing a group together where we were doing design thinking, investment banking. We were talking about privilege. And it was amazing the conversations and the eye-opening that it gave for a number of people about how they engage. But once they get to that point where we start to get a point of view. It's the ripple effect, isn't it? Because a a simple decision made on the wrong basis can cause so much damage down the road. And therefore, it's about the collective wisdom, not only your wisdom, but the collective wisdom to how to take it forward, which is the important thing, which is where I think leadership is moving now, is how do I harness that collective wisdom of my team, people below me, people beside me, and my customers to be better. And just checking out whether I've got the right theme from what you're talking about there. Yes, you do. And I need to position it against the dark side Mm. of leadership Mm. because you're, you're right that we are moving in the business environments that people like you and and I frequent. Mm. I do see a clear movement toward a type of leadership that understands mm. that nobody can do it alone, that you need to truly enable others. And it sounds trite. Yeah. It sounds a little bit wishy-washy, but absolutely you are empowering 
the people you're leading to bring to the collective endeavor the best they've got. Mm-hmm. And you, if you don't cultivate humility about your capabilities, together with the confidence you've got something to offer to the collective endeavor, and if you don't understand that you're interdependent with all these people, that you're not an island doing things uh, by fiat from the top, uh, throwing it down. Mm-hmm. If you don't do those things, you're not going to lead well. You're not going to lead sustainably over time. Eventually, something will go wrong. Yes, I see people uh, really resonating with this idea. And yet, hmm. we are presented with examples of, of leaders who make you look like it's all about them. Yeah. It's very dangerous territory because they're often very successful. Hmm. And so you, you can easily imagine people looking at them and going, I like, see you can totally lead like an egomaniac mm. as long as you are supremely talented. Uh, you can totally do that because eventually things fall in place and you're, mm. you're great. But what that kind of um, attribution hides mm. is that th- even those people that look like they are the, the salt of the earth and, and are unstoppable, they rely on a lot of other really great people. Yeah. Look at Elon Musk and what's going mm. on now. Mm. There's no question the guy is genius-like mm. in many, many ways. But this notion mm. that he is a savior, that it's all about what he personally does, mm. it's ludicrous. Yep. Of course it isn't. Of course mm. it isn't. Yes, there are individuals that have exceptionalities, that can do things that most others cannot do, or at least can push for things that others cannot do. And mm. he deserves lots of credit for, and I have, you know, I, I, I thank him personally because I managed to buy Tesla stock a long time ago. <laughs> so I'm happy. I'm not, compa- I'm not complaining. But he has worked Mm. with extraordinary people along the way. To this day, he counts in the ranks of these companies hundreds, thousands of really talented people. Mm. And the notion that he can sometimes be a little dismissive. Mm. Uh, I heard an interview uh, with him where he was basically saying that, you know, he had to fire all these executives or or basically yeah you know if not fire but make it really hard for them to stick around yeah because i wish i could delegate this work Hmm. but i i i've learned that i basically can't you know i and it's like okay yes there could be some truth in that Mm -hmm. but can we perhaps present a story through which we understand your success that actually gives credit to all the contributors to the success that you've encountered along the way, including, by the way, mm. government funding. Yeah. There's a whole lot of science that uh, these tech great men mm. draw from yep. that they did not develop, that has been uh, funded by uh, governments for decades, yep. that has seen tremendous scientists 
contribute to develop, champion, push for against all odds. And in they come, these folks, and absolutely, they are brilliant because they know how to translate that knowledge into something that is commercially viable, profitable, and and helpful to humanity for the most part. Yes. But, uh, hello, remember interdependence? Remember that you are not it, baby. Yeah. Uh, you are one contributor, sometimes mm. a spectacular one. And we give you all the kudos and the accolades. But please, don't go on stage all the time presenting yourself as the essential element of the future of humanity because you drive me a little bit bananas. And the reason why you drive me bananas is because you then sway all other leaders that are finally understanding the wisdom that we are in it together, that we need each other to do great work. And then Mm. my job as a leader is to create a stage on which you all, perform at your best. Mm -hmm. My job is not to be the lone person on that stage making it look like I did it. And these folks get alone on that stage all the time. I would agree. We need need, uh, them to help us remind people about the need for the wisdom, and the awareness that we are, in fact, interdependent. Yeah. And we do our best work when we acknowledge that. Yeah. It's interesting because I was listening to somebody else the other day talking about how as a leader you learn. And, and one of the, the analogies they use is about changing your zip code or your postcode. So going off and learning with people who are better than you working. And, and that is fundamentally great. And I think sometimes these people will go off and work and they will exponentially grow. But it comes back to what David Marquette talks about in the leadership power gradient, which is if they come back and still with a power gradient high, with an arrogance, as you talked about before, then it doesn't allow other people to see how do they, how do they get there? How do they operate in that space, which is your, your point there. And it, it's fascinating because it is this power that fuels this arrogance, as you talk about, and this mm-hmm. perception. I also loved your government funding point because it, we forget about that. You know, how often are, am I using ideas now that came from somebody's work 20 years ago? And even one of your co-authors, Amy's work around, you know, psychological safety, we're all using it now. So we, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we've got to recognize them as we go through that power journey as well. Absolutely. This kind of unconstrained credit grabbing that we see that people do is really detrimental to a sustained excellence for the system in which we operate. And also because it leads people to think that that this private enterprise is the the way to go. Uh, Well, (laughs) you know, you need both. You do. You need both. And the, the, the folks that are thriving in the private enterprise uh, are capable because, in part, in part, yeah. because of those shoulders that they stand on. 
Yeah. And uh, let's uh, let's acknowledge it because then we can do it more, right? We can do it more. We can exactly. do this, the public and the private. And that in that joining of forces, that's when we do the great things. Not when we go off and forget that without those foundations, we would never have gotten to this point because we, never, we cannot get to that point again. Yeah. You know, if you deprive these basic scientific endeavors of funding, Mm-hmm. 30 years from now, you're not going to have a technology that produces a vaccine in record time. Yeah. That, that technology has been in the works for 30 years. And uh, there is this particular Hungarian scientist who was the pioneer of all of this. And she had to face so many obstacles and people slamming their door in her face constantly. And she stuck with it. Yeah. And thanks to her and, and the uh, scientists that she spawned, we have a technology that then could be commercialized and deployed within six months. But, honey, it doesn't come from nowhere. <laughs> it, it comes from people. And then we have to really, honestly, be a little bit less self-obsessed uh, with our own greatness. And that's where I, I resent these great men who go out there and say, I did it. Only I can fix it. Please. I, you know, the, I'd add world beating. It's my hate discretion. We've got a world beating. And it just always reminds me of the movie Elf, where he's in, goes and he sees the world's best coffee and he's drinking. He walks in, congratulations for the world beating, you know. Uh, and it's, <laughs> Just for me, what what are we, you know, the, that for me is the seven generational philosophy is the, the concept of power. I've loved this conversation. I could go on and I think we should have another one. Yeah, let's take it because we didn't even get to the, the second part of your career. So there's a part two coming in terms of Harvard <laughs> and everything else you did. So I, I've loved our conversation today. If people want to find you, discover more about about your work, your book, where would they go to, to find that? Oh, well, uh, I think I should direct them to the website that uh, uh, Julie and I uh, put together for our book, which is aptly called powerforallbook.com. Hey. Uh, simple enough. And there you you can track us down, both myself and Julie, and see how the ideas of this book have been taken to different domains and different topics. And you really, uh, you see these dynamics in everything from the, the Texas abortion law to the Ukraine war to the psychological safety that the leader creates in the, in the workplace, you see it everywhere. And once you master them, it really is like having infrared glasses that see through things that, that may, might have looked confusing before. So I, I, I do invite your listeners to check out powerforallbook.com. I'm sure they will. Desiana, lovely to talk to you. Let's get another one. Let's get part two, the return, whatever we want to call it. We'll, we'll, we'll think of a name for it, But because uh, I'd love to talk a bit more about the other parts of the work that you've done, the other articles in particular around networking, and then the cross-section work in, in, in industry and organizations, I think, is also another fascinating part of your work. But for today, thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you, Colin. Uh, I look forward to round two very soon. (laughs) Ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Tatiana was, for me, is just, it's an amazing conversation to listen to that today. And to be on the receiving end of talking to people like that. We talked about this imposter syndrome, and she talks about how it's that balance between confidence and not being too arrogant, and then having that doubt in your mind about your capability. And I, whenever I talk to people, who are like Tatiana, I find it enlightening that they can make you feel empowered with the way they talk and the way they share the knowledge. And that power that she shares about her knowledge and experiences is something I'm passionate about because it's one of the things I want to, to, to work on in myself in terms of being able to share points of view and stories. So fascinating to hear that. But also the conversation on generations and the young generation and how we malign them so many times, but actually what they're facing and the challenges they're facing as well as they go into the future. But the hope they give us uh, was a fascinating piece for me. So loved having her on. Um, I'll look forward to welcoming you back on another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Mm-hmm.